British designer Tom Dixon was born in Tunisia, where he spent his first four years, before moving to England, where he now runs a design studio and consumer-facing brand under his own name. Having worked with some of the world's biggest brands, he's also had his work collected by the likes of London's Victoria and Albert Museum and New York's Museum of Modern Art. He joins Susie Anetta on the line for a conversation about his unconventional start, the creative process, and how his studio has become a training ground for the next generation of designers. This is the Design Dialogues. to perhaps get you to talk a bit about your path to where you are now. I hope it's fair to say that it's been a bit non-traditional or non-linear, starting out in music and then kind of ending up in welding and being a maker designer. Um, maybe what you felt like you got out of all of those experiences, you know, had you gone to school that you might have missed out on or finished art school and, um, you know, m- maybe what you're looking for in people when you're hiring in the studio is a sort of a formal education Um, completely necessary these days? Well, it's so hard to generalise, right? And I think that every personality, every character has a different needs in terms of, you know, path and stimulation and learning. I mean, for me, after having tried uh, art school for maybe six months, it really didn't agree with me. Um, I didn't make the decision myself to leave. I, I actually had a motorbike crash and broke my legs. I was in hospital for a while. Um, and I just chose to not go back. And um, I think what I learned, um, which you probably don't get so much at college, is discipline, you know, in terms of getting up early and, and putting in um, a day's work. I, my first job straight out of art school was a, a technician, which was a 7 a.m. start, you know. And so I learned to love mornings and um, and um, also the structure of a, of a working day, I guess, which is less and less what you get at college, at least in the arts, you know. Um, and then, you know, in terms of all of the other experiences, yeah, I think they, they all feed into making you into a unique proposition, you know, and I I always look for um, beyond design training in in candidates or people that I work with, um, because I think it's important to look at design uh, with an exterior view, I guess. Um, And I had a lot of different experiences as well that, that taught me different components of um, uh, what I'm like now. Do you think maybe the world has changed so much that now, um, you know, that a formal education is required, that it's more and more difficult for creatives or other designers to go that sort of non-traditional or that non-linear path and sort of learn in a hands-on way rather than in a formal educational environment? Not at all. I mean, I think, if anything, it's almost more recommended because the cost of education is so high now, at least in the UK, that, you you know, you really have to weigh up the the, the monster investment, the debt against, you know, any potential benefits. And, you know, I think the internet has opened up, 
you know, the whole world of learning at least some of the basic skills like, I don't know, uh, 3D modeling, um, for instance, which you can download programs for free. All the things that you need are, are kind of available also with, you know, uh, tutorials online, which effectively is what a lot of people in classical education have only had over the last a uh, couple of years. So I think you know things have changed radically in terms of um, uh, the ability of people that are self-motivated to to gain um, to gain knowledge. And um, but there are some people that obviously that, that benefit from a slightly more formal and um, longer time in in uh, in education for sure. So it's, it's like I say, it's hard. It's hard to. to Generalized. I think it's it's wrong to generalize uh, with people having such different um, needs. Yeah, it's good to hear that you think that there are still paths available for people um, that don't necessarily suit that kind of environment. Um, but I, I read somewhere that you had some experiences. Well, I think you started out welding, um, but also were working with other materials. And I think you'd said that working with clay at school was quite a formative experience for you. And you know, I wonder if you think there are some similarities between those materials being quite sculpturable, uh, sculptural and malleable. And I, you know, I wonder if that was something that you were consciously drawn to. Have you kind of thought about that in retrospect? Um, no, you're the first person to ask that question. So there you go. Let yeah. me think about this one. <laughs> you know, so um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that the, the the clay was really. I was very lucky in my kind of non-academic secondary school to have an amazing ceramics department at, at my disposal it was a big inner city comprehensive school but which was very poor on discipline very poor on academic learning but had amazing art facilities so i managed to you know get a sense of materials and a sense of proportion from the life drawing class and from the ceramics department and you know clay i think taught me the, the the possibilities inherent in an ugly and formless greasy material turning into something desirable um, but I wouldn't say that I'm drawn to um, malleable materials at all because you know the, the the metal I was starting welding was really found objects and I didn't manipulate it I didn't bend it I didn't have any tools it was just more assemblage or, or constructions rather than um, than a malleable material and you know some materials have both states like glass for instance can be molten and malleable or can be you know sheet glass that you cut and, and construct you know so I, I don't see the distinction although funny enough in in secondary schools now they, they teach resistant materials and non-resistant materials in a kind of uh, in a, an attempt to get away from uh, the traditional uh, kind of descriptions of things like needlework and and pottery versus metalwork and woodwork mm. and I've always found that really peculiar way of dividing up the world actually. <laughs> Yeah, and so you just mentioned that you were working quite a bit with found objects and some salvage materials earlier on. Is that something that still excites you and something that you'd still like to continue to explore? Is that possible, you know, when you have a brand such as you do? Um, well, I mean, it's been exactly what happened to me 
um, during COVID because in the absence of having uh, an ability to come into to work, you know, just like you, we were completely stuck at home for a, a long time. I, I kind of escaped into a kind of agricultural setting, horticultural setting, actually, uh, a, an industrial greenhouse in, in the south of England um, where I was completely alone in this vast space, with lots and lots of um, raw materials that were just, you know, discarded. So broken glass, bamboo sticks, um, wire. And um, I started making things exactly that I'd started as well. And it sort of reminded me a bit of, of why I, I ended up like this in the first place, just through the joy of actually constructing things for no, uh, no particular commercial motive, just for the pure joy of it. I'm, I'm curious to know actually whether you think that ability uh, to make things, but also I guess specifically constructing things from found materials, whether that ability and that knowledge and that understanding of construction and making has been, you know, an important part of you being able to run a brand successfully, this sort of not just being able to design, but understanding the sort of behind the scenes. How important would you say that is for a designer? Well, it depends what kind of designer you are. You know, I mean, I think increasingly we're moving towards a, a state where maybe you don't even need to construct things at all. In, in um, if you see the the, the, the immense uh, leaps forward in AI and the rest of it, you can construct a brand without having anything exist at all. Um, so that's a kind of interesting new world developing. Although you still need to understand how to construct things in in digital formats. Um, for me, it was important because I'm interested in how things are made, and I think it's it's very useful to know that, particularly in terms of understanding whether things will hold together and how much they'll cost to make. You know, so I think my whole um, experience, not just making things myself, almost as a craftsperson, and then on to working for a big company like. Habitat, which was owned by IKEA at the time, taught me really how many, many um, objects are made and where they're made and at what price and, and how they hold together. And that's been you know, really instructive for me. It's not necessarily uh, particularly important in terms of uh, creating a brand, but it's important in the creation of this brand, if you like. Mm. And I guess equally so, you know, understanding commerce and commerciality, but also the logistics and the shipping. I mean, I imagine that that would have been an incredibly important uh, set of skills and understanding for you to be able to set up a brand. It's, um, you know, not that common for designers to operate their own brands. They generally tend to work in-house somewhere else or they're working on commissions. Um, you know, it doesn't seem to be the easy path. Do you think that's why you followed that path? Is there something innate in um, kind of maybe doing things a difficult <laughs> I, way? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe I know too much now. You know, you, I always think, you know, when I speak to other people, if, if we knew what we know now, we probably wouldn't have started. So I think, you know, going in with a, a, a large degree of naivety, um, is is important as well as, as having a lot of knowledge, you know. So I mean, for sure, you know, the, the exposure to, to international sourcing, to you know, an understanding of what people really buy as opposed to what you think they buy from the magazines has been, you know, has been very useful in terms of um, building something which has got a, a sound uh, commercial footing. But 
um, like I say, sometimes if, if you know too much, it can actually be an obstacle uh, because you give up dreaming or, 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 or being free to create, you know. So sometimes I, I have to kick myself to say, like, okay, fine, it's not, this may not um, be uh, commercial, but it's worth doing because nobody really knows what's commercial or, or whether it's possible to make this thing anyway. And, and, you know, some of our adventures have really been trying to, you know, almost like a, 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 a game of snakes and ladders, trying to get a product through all of the different obstacles. Yeah, an mm. obstacle race, that's what it's like. Mm. I'm wondering, you know, how you make decisions around what kinds of products you're bringing into the collection. Is it pieces that you want for yourself or are you, you know, identifying a gap in the market or is it really just maybe an exploration of materials and production processes or is it maybe a combination of all of those things? Uh, depends who you speak to in the company. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I usually liken it a bit to chaos theory where, you know, you're, you're throwing up a lot of, you're kicking up a lot of dust and it'll settle in a certain pattern. You know, I mean, you're, you've got a, a, a series of streams of investigation, some based on, on experience, some, some based on inspiration. And then, then you try and mold, you know, mold a, a collection from it. I mean, it's, it's much, it's, it's a bit more, um, uh, an art and a science, put it that way. And but of course, you know, as you get bigger, the, the, you get more and more um, into into the mode of, of doing things in a in a conventional way. And sometimes my, my job is almost to fight that and say, look, let's try and be more radical. And, and you know, because you're you can be ruled also by your successes of the previous year. Um, you know, the salespeople, um, the 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 your your dealers or your uh, your resellers expect some more of, of the same hits from before. Um, and, you know, so it's a delicate balancing act always, just like any, I don't know, musician, let's say, um, people always want you to play your greatest hits, right? <laughs> so, and, and you always want to do something completely new and challenging. So I think, you know, to, 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 to keep a company, particularly in, the, in a sector which is as slow consumption as, as home, um, you have to you have to um, you, you have to produce things which, which a have got a longevity and, and b uh, make sense with with the infrastructure that you've built up. Given that your company has grown so much since you first founded it, you know, I'm wondering what kind of pressures you've faced. Uh, you know, while you know the company is growing, and whether it now looks you know quite different to perhaps what you'd first planned when you started the brand. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a completely different constitution. It's not, it's not like we've we've pivoted like a, a an, an internet company or something into something completely different. I mean, it's, it's broadly got um, the, the shape that I set out to do. But um, you know, a, a lot of the presumptions that you make, you know, come to nothing. You know, I'd, I'd come from a large retail organisation into um, into a wholesale organisation, which is a completely different dynamic. Um, which you know would take a whole other podcast to explain, I guess. Um, and you know, I, I I had some preconceptions about us following a bit the, the the model of the fashion business as the eponymous designer. You know, meaning that you know we do um, we do the, the, the branding, the design. 
um, and the distribution, but not the manufacturing. And that's that's come to pass. You know, um, that's what we've done. But at, w- at one point, we were thinking really of having a, a master company with lots of sub brands underneath, which you know some of which would not have been Tom Dixon, which we tried for a while with a company called Artec, which was um, you know under our umbrella mm. for a while. Um, but uh, and I still, you know, I still feel that that might be the way that we end up. I don't think it's a, a finished experiment. Put it that way. I don't think it's completely complete. So I mean, yeah, you haven't pivoted, but the company has broadened. I mean, aside from product design, you've also got an interior design arm and restaurants. Um, you know, I guess I'm wondering: do do you get bored easily? Are all of these little offshoots of the company existing because you need to kind of constantly be stimulating your imagination? Um, and is that something that maybe I don't know? I guess yeah, I don't want to generalise, but is it just a sign of all creative people that there is this? I don't know, easily bored. What would you say to that? Well, I'm definitely easily bored. You can ask anybody that you like, you know, that have a very, very low boredom threshold. But, you know, you know, for me, the, the, the restaurant and the interior design studio are not um, so much offshoots. They're, 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 they seem perfectly log- logical to me in terms of, you know, uh, having, uh, I guess, a constitution which is different from other uh, other interior product companies but completely logical in terms of um stretch of the of the concept if you like so you know the the i i sometimes think it's very odd that other interior product or furniture companies don't have a restaurant because it's a much better showroom than um than than our actual showroom in terms of really testing out the things in in terms of people really sticking around enjoying the furnishing and the lighting and the accessories in a way that they really wouldn't be able to in in, in the furniture showroom um and then you know the interior design studio which is small but perfectly formed is is a really valuable way of understanding what uh, what what people need to furnish a space um, before we impose it on our wholesale distribution. You know, so um, I'm I'm very perplexed as to why other brands wouldn't have interior design studios because it's a perfect kind of environment for really understanding how how you build a contemporary um, interior project. So yeah, I mean, given your low threshold for boredom, how do you um, how do you stay motivated and passionate and um, I guess kind of rejuvenated? Is is work enough? Are there other outside pursuits that you kind of follow to stay stimulated? Yes and no. I mean, again, I don't really see my um, my, my work as as uh, as separate from from. Uh, from the rest of my life, and there's not as clear a separation. I, you know, it still feels like a bit hobby doing what I do, anyhow, <laughs> right? And of course, mm. the beauty of design is that it really can be applied to every bit of our built environment. You know, there's there's a lot of um, design challenges that I've done very few of buildings, for instance, city planning I've never done, you know, so you can extend it as far as you like in that direction. And there's always new things um, coming up um, that you feel you could have a point of view on, which is distinct from other people. So the challenge isn't so much me getting bored, the challenge is me convincing people that I'm not just the person that makes chairs or makes lamps, you know, and, uh, you know, you do tend to get pigeonholed 
um, mm. if you're not active and you know in demonstrating interest in other sectors. And so you have actually a couple of new interior design projects coming up in Australia, I believe. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about those and um, maybe what it's been like working on projects in Australia. So we've been working in a business district in Sydney on a tower called QQT, doing some of the interiors um, in collaboration with the Danish architecture firm 3XN um, and that's been really very interesting apart from the fact that we've not been able to travel and see the works in progress so you know it's been like everything else something which has been quite frustrating to not actually get properly involved in the site I mean I think with all of these things you know, being able to to visit and and engage with the people that are on the ground and particularly, you know, uh, local quarries, local craftsmen. I mean, that's my passion anyway, but that'll be, you know, I think that's slowly opening right now. So I'll be able to see it on my visit in, in the next three or four weeks. Um, we also did a project <clears throat> called Rondua House, which was a, you know, off plan, um, uh, residential project or at least to help a designer called Lucy Mark Six um, finish that project off. Um, so Australia, you know, I think is a very design aware and forward looking place, which is so far been a joy to um, collaborate and work within. Um, but we tend to do it with local partners because of the distance. Well, obviously we're very much looking forward to seeing those finished. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Milan and what Tom Dixon, the brand, might be showing there this year. Um, and if you feel Milan is still relevant, you know, these big shows, I think there's been a lot of conversation and debate around what the future or the, you know, what it might look like, the format of these big trade shows. I think things have changed quite a bit, obviously, since COVID. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's kind of a bit hard to... Um to know until we really go into Milan this year, you know, um, the one we, we, we did, we were present in a virtual form um, during lockdown, which was most frustrating. Um, mm. We did do the one which was off the normal date last year, which was super interesting and joyful, but from a commerce point of view, very hard to, to read, obviously, because half, half the potential visitors and brands couldn't visit because of uh, restrictions and also because it was not at the right calendar date. So, I mean, we've not really done a proper trade fair since. Um, and so this is the test in a way. And of course, a lot of people have managed to continue business without doing the trade fairs. So I think it's a rocky time for trade fairs right now just to get momentum back. But it's been very difficult for us to launch new products without having that platform. You know, a digital launch really doesn't do it. So, you know, mm -hmm. part of the motivation for going to Australia is very much, well, you know, we've got three years worth of of new products that we've not really talked about or or shown to people. Um, and, you know, for me, the, 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 the balancing act is you know, big trade fairs versus more personal, smaller, more local um, interventions. And, and, you know, so 
um, this this spring really is the test for uh, working out what our attitude is towards you know the the, the global mega fair versus the, the the local visit and and so we'll be doing both in the same in the same month pretty much um, and then I'll I'll tell you afterwards <laughs> whether whether the fairs are working for us or not you know yeah okay well I guess we'll all stay tuned for that then won't we <laughs> um, so my next question is I guess um, maybe your role as a mentor, um, you know, I've actually interviewed a couple of people for the podcast that have, you know, started out early on in their career working for you. And really? I, you know, I wonder whether, yeah, people like Ooh. Michael Young and Linda Boronke, um, Ben McCarthy, there's, you know, probably a much longer list than I can, that comes to mind immediately. But, um, yeah, you know, I wonder whether that's something that you're kind of actively participating in as a, you know, a role as a mentor. Is it something that you feel a sense of responsibility to, I don't know, um, give back to, you know, a new generation of designers? I mean, I wouldn't say I set out consciously to do that, but, you know, it's a, it's a source of great enjoyment to see people flourish and 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 um and and be set free after after their time with me you know i've i've been i've been um kind of a a, a place of of refuge really for a lot of misfits um <laughs> that that couldn't get employment anywhere else and um and you know if 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 i've managed to you know encourage them to spread their wings that's kind of great you know I, I i i gained as much from them as they gained from me that's for sure and um and long may it continue i mean it's not like i'm a vampire sucking the blood of of young people but but it's kind of it's always great to get a a, a fresh perspective in the studio and and often the best people are not there for that long because you know they they just need a kind of a landing place that they can they can or a platform they can they can jump from and, and do their own thing so i've become you know accustomed i wouldn't call it mentoring um but you know when people come here we try and uh, treat them with respect and and make sure that they've um that, that they get uh, a broad understanding of of um, all kinds of things it's been you know in different contexts for so long now that for sure some of the people that pass through have gone on to do great things you know, i mean i taught a lot of people to weld um and some people for some people that was a completely new career, new, a liberation to understand. I think also just to understand that you can make um, a living out of your own ideas and your own creativity. If they learn that, then then that's a good thing. Um, and then I do occasionally mm. do, you know, teaching in, in, in schools and stuff, and that's interesting, but really should take more time than I've got. I mean, you need to invest in those people properly. So I find it easier to do mm. here, you know, in in um, in the studio with um, with real life things rather than theoretical uh, projects. That's really good to hear. Well, my final question is: um, What's next for you, Tom Dixon, the person, and also Tom Dixon, the brand? Anything that you're able to talk about that we can look forward to? Well, I mean, so immediately next is like i say the the the, the trade fair in the australian um uh micro tour so i mean first time i've been to perth first time i've been to brisbane 
you know, so mm. you know, expanding my knowledge of your continent. Um, so that's immediate. Then on to um, on to the, uh, the the to Milan, where actually for the first time we're showing a new Lucio. So where normally we'd do a series of in the city uh, kind of crazy events. This time we've decided that we're going to go into the the heart of the beast and 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 sort of mm-hmm. look like a a proper a proper company, um, a conventional company, mm-hmm. which is almost more radical than doing another um, radical show in town. So that that's what what's going on at the moment. I mean, I think you know, from, from a personal perspective, you know, for sure, um, pandemic has taught me, you know, to 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 get back to doing things with my own hands again, which you know, I'd kind of forgotten how to do. Um, it taught me a bit more about the outdoors, you know, the the, um, the countryside. And I think some of those experiences will definitely come out either in the work or in personal projects, which, no, I don't want to talk about right now. I'd rather show you for real next year. Sure. That sounds good. Well, it's nice to hear that you're still working on personal projects. So, yeah, we're all, I'm sure, very much looking forward to seeing what that might be. But in the meantime, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting and, yeah, we really appreciate it. Great. Well, I hope to see you when I get there. Sounds good. Sounds good.